0: Welcome to AFSPA Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association with Chief Operating Officer Kyle Longton. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel. Enjoy the episode.
1: Hi, and welcome to another episode of AFSPA Talks. I'm Kyle Longton, and with me, as always, is...
0: Hannah Wolfart.
1: Hannah, today this episode is going to be coming out on um, August 23rd, and it is wrapping up um, our Aspa talks about back to school mini series. And we've had a couple episodes already. Can you remind me what those are? It seems like we've been we've been running through these so quickly.
0: Yeah, definitely. We our first back to school episode was back to elementary school, um, where. We talked to an elementary school teacher um, who basically gave us a rundown on what going to school was like during the pandemic last year and what school will be like this year going back to school in a pandemic as well. And uh, she gave us you know, advice and tips for parents too on what's useful and helpful during the school year and keeping your child safe. Our second back-to-school episode was back to middle school, so we got a different perspective. We talked to an eighth-grade history teacher, and she gave us uh, this similar idea of what going back to school is like for middle schoolers, Um, so, you know, with changing classrooms and teachers and what all of that is going to look like. Both of those are really interesting episodes. They're on our website and uh, you can get them on any podcast app that you listen to. So I suggest you go check those out before you listen to this, but this is also going to be a really nice supplement to those two.
1: Yeah. And before we get to today's episode, um, the the podcasts are not all that we've been doing to try to help our members navigate back to school this year. Uh, You and your colleagues on our communications team have been working on something else.
0: Yeah, so we did a blog, A Safe Return to the Classroom, which is really in the title, A Safe Return to the Classroom, uh, practicing social distancing, mask wearing, uh, tips and advice and resources for parents. So you guys should go check that out. Um, that's kind of a brief overview and the podcast is more of an in-depth look.
1: Excellent. I And Hannah, this is your area of expertise. You can put a link to, um, to that blog in our show notes. Is that right?
0: Yep, you'll find a link in the show notes to the blog.
1: Excellent. And, and we had some information from um, the, the teachers and um, about mask wearing, about prevention strategies, and, and how to, to help keep everybody healthy. But we're really going to dig in on that today um, and add some medical expertise to the series. So our guest today is Alana Pearl Ben-Joseph, MD who is a pediatrician and medical editor at the Center for Health Delivery Innovation in the Niemers Children's Health System. Dr. Pearl Ben-Joseph has extensive experience creating easy-to-understand patient education materials about health-related topics. She also has a Master of Public Health degree and has been working hard over the pandemic to help people understand the science and public health impact of COVID-19. This is just one of the ways that she's doing that It's our podcast today. Finally, she's also a visiting scholar at Wellesley College, uh, where she has been studying the effects of social media on children and adolescents, and how parental involvement can affect the experience of youth as they navigate the world of media and electronics. And I think we're going to be able to touch on all of those topics today. It may be one of our longer episodes, Hannah, um, but I think it's going to be worth our, our listeners staying tuned.
0: I 100% agree. It's going to be an interesting one.
1: So let's get started. Dr. Ilana Ben-Joseph, thank you so much for joining us to wrap up our mini-series on back to school.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So it is August, and that does mean back to school for most children in America. Some are already back in the classroom, um, and some will be returning uh, in the weeks ahead. But this year is different from last year because many are returning to the classroom for the first time in maybe 17 or 18 months. Um, And I think about back to school, I think about wellness visits, maybe some vaccinations, maybe vaccination records that we've got to turn into the schools, sports, physicals, and so forth. Um, Now, I know from our our health plan side, and anecdotally, that um, healthcare utilization was down in 2020, and even into 2021. So a lot of people put off preventive care, including children. Um, What in In your experience and your your um, understanding of of what your colleagues are doing in their clinical practices and so forth, have you seen evidence of delayed care in pediatrics?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think not in not just in pediatrics. Yeah. It's been across the board, but it's very true. The pandemic has uh, definitely led to delays in preventive care visits and in vaccinations partly because families were told to stay home (laughs) especially at the beginning of the pandemic we were shut down or locked down um, as a measure to stop the spread but even when families were asked please come in you know bring your child to get them vaccinated to have their well child visits um bring your sick children in um, if they're not feeling well families were scared uh for fear of catching the virus so i've seen surveys that showed that uh a quarter of all families either missed, skipped, or delayed these well-child visits, and some studies even showed bigger numbers, um, as much as maybe half of all visits being down due to the pandemic.
1: Well, and and you mentioned both, you know, the the well-child visits, even sick visits were delayed. But you also mentioned vaccines were delayed and missed. Um, you know, what effects could these delays in preventive care? Um, as well as with vaccines, have on either short-term or long-term development.
2: Right. Vaccinations really dropped significantly in all kids right after the pandemic started. And it looks like the younger kids are now getting vaccinated again, but the older ones still have a decrease in vaccination rates, unfortunately. And this puts them at risk for vaccine-preventable diseases, Um, Let's talk about vaccines that kids routinely get. I think it's really yeah. important. Babies get a whole bunch of vaccines for diseases that we really hardly ever see anymore because the vaccines have prevented them. So things like tetanus, diphtheria, whooping cough, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, you know, uh, just a whole slew of um, illnesses that have been prevented due to vaccines. And there's also some infections that we do see, hepatitis, um, which are viral infections or um, Chicken pox, definitely Mm -hmm. flu, but vaccines really have brought those numbers down of those infections. Um, Some vaccines fight bacteria that used to cause awful diseases, um, severe pneumonias, meningitis. Those vaccines are called um, or those bacteria are called pneumococcus or haemophilus that I remember learning about in medical school way back. We don't see them anymore. We just, you know, so it's incredible. The. 14 potentially very serious diseases um, in kids are prevented by vaccines. So and, and vaccines are actually given according to a specific schedule based on how the children's immune system will respond to them at various ages and how likely kids are uh, to be exposed to that particular disease. So delaying the vaccines, as I said, can leave kids vulnerable and unprotected Specifically, when they're most likely to have uh, serious complications from these diseases. And I'll give you an example. Whooping cough can be just an annoying cough in a a teenager or in an adult. They call it the 100 day cough, it's a nuisance. But for a baby, it can really be deadly. So that's why we give whooping cough vaccines when they're babies early on. We don't wait until they're older. The key is to give the vaccines before the child uh, has a chance of getting exposed to the disease. Uh, We don't wait until a car crashes. To then put on our seatbelts, right? We put the seatbelt right at the beginning of the ride. So it's the same with vaccines. We want babies to get them long before they're actually exposed.
1: Right. And and I want to return. We'll, we'll probably return to the topic of vaccines a little bit later when we dig in on COVID. But just to to touch on um, you know preventive care again, there are a lot of screenings that happen um, in those preventive those well child visits. Are there effects on short term and long term development that that we're seeing or may see because those um, those visits have been missed?
2: Well, short term, maybe we can talk about. Long term is a little bit harder because we need to study that over the long term. But definitely well-child checkups for preventive care are times that pediatricians will screen for developmental problems. For example, we might catch delays in speech or in walking or problems with feeding or problems with growing. Um, We might uncover depression or anxiety or other mental health problems. And we've certainly seen those more than ever during the pandemic, Uh, you know, and children uh, short-term might end up in the emergency department with, let's say, for example, depression or anxiety, statuses that are much more severe than had they been caught at an earlier stage. Um, But besides development, um, pediatricians will also screen for medical conditions that might otherwise go under the radar because they don't always cause symptoms. So for example, um, we'll measure blood pressure, listen for heart murmurs, feel the belly to make sure there's no masses or, you know, anything that's enlarged. We'll check vision, we'll check hearing. We also send children for tests to look for things like anemia or lead levels in the blood. So all of these things are things that parents don't see and and will miss if they don't actually go for their well-child visits. And I'll give you an example. I heard a lot of stories about leukemias that were not caught in time. Children showed up to emergency part, emergency departments when they were already very symptomatic, um, and they were just simply missed because the parents were scared to come in, or maybe they had had an early form of telehealth that was just by phone and it wasn't didn't have really um, yeah. proper physical examination. And parents might not notice how pale a child looks or the paleness of the red around inside the eye. That's part of what pediatricians are trained to catch. So definitely short term illnesses may have been missed, longer term, we're gonna have to wait and see what happens with kids' development.
1: And and I appreciate that you touched on some of the behavioral and mental health pieces that we're seeing. And and we've addressed that in some of our previous episodes of this podcast. So um, you mentioned that there are screenings that take place at various ages for behavioral health issues um, and that those you know, well-child visits play a, a role in diagnosing that. And I'm particularly thinking of the effect of the last year, as you mentioned, depression and anxiety have emerged. Can you expand a little bit on what what you're seeing in your research and what clinicians are seeing in their treatment?
2: Absolutely. Well, as I said before, we've seen an uptick in mental health problems in kids over the course of the pandemic. And well-child visits and timely sick kid visits are really essential in discovering these things early on so that we can get a head start on assessing and on treating. So Let me reemphasize how important the well-child visits are. Um, As I mentioned earlier, pediatricians will assess development informally at every visit. They'll ask about a parent's concerns. They'll observe the child. They'll ask about the home environment. But they also do more formal and in-depth developmental um, and behavioral screening for all kids during the well-child visits at ages 9, 18, and 30 months. And on top of that, they'll screen specifically for autism spectrum disorder um before a child turns two so that's for the littles <laughs> um, but they continue we continue to screen older kids for development for behaviors uh, in teens we start to screen for depression um, we'll assess for things like adhd you know if the child is hyperactive or inattentive if they're struggling in school we might assess for learning disorders mm-hmm. So I
1: want to take a minute because I, I'm a parent of young children myself, and sometimes I'm not sure where to turn to. And, and Google will give me all kinds of answers, but I don't always know about the, the usefulness or the origin of those answers. So I want to talk about a resource that you've helped to build, and that's Kids Health. Um, that's actually how we connected was through your work on Kids Health and that AFSPA and, and our Foreign Service Benefit Plan have long promoted this resource for our members. Can you briefly, um, because there's a lot on there, but can you briefly share with our listeners what kind of information they can find on Kids Health and and maybe even a little bit about how that information is put together?
2: Sure. So Kids Health is a free website, can be seen and accessed by everyone. Um, It's put together by a fabulous multidisciplinary group that includes medical professionals who edit the material, um, experienced health writers editors, illustrators, um, IT technicians, a marketing team. Uh, We have just all kinds of people who work together to create information about children's health available by topic, by age. We actually have three audiences. We speak to parents, we speak to teens, and we speak to kids. And actually we have a fourth audience. We also create educational materials for educators, for teachers. And the topics run the gamut from anything to do with children and their health. So it could be illnesses or injuries. It could be just development, uh, behaviors, emotions, first aid, um, fitness, food, uh, you name it. (laughs) There's even recipes um, and and games for kids. So, um, you know, I think your listeners should just check it out. Visit kidshealth.org and explore it.
1: Yep. And, and I think this is really an underutilized resource, at least in, in my circle of uh, parents of, of kids, my, my kids age. Um, but I, I have started using it. Um, I'm excited. My, my kids are very interested in helping me cook. So we'll be trying some of the recipes and trying to get them engaged. So um, I appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing because it's a, a fantastic resource. Thank you. Now we've we've touched on it before. Um, you, you've mentioned it, and I, I want to dig in a bit more on on COVID um, nineteen. And, and a lot of a lot of parents are probably listening for that, particularly as we're focused on back to school. Um, the Delta variant appears to be affecting children more than previous uh, variants or previous strains, and we are seeing hospitals and pediatric ICUs filling up. Uh, what can you tell us about kids and, and COVID nineteen? Maybe start with sort of the the medical, physical side, and then I'd love to to talk a bit more about the behavioral um, effects also, even for those who haven't haven't contracted COVID-19.
2: So, all right, let's start a little bit with numbers, because you mentioned the increase and the hospitals filling up. So some statistics from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As of just last week, over 4 million kids have tested positive for the virus, 14% of all cases have actually been in kids. It had declined in the early summer, um, as it did for everyone else, but the cases have really steadily been increasing uh, since July. And that's especially in the Southern United States, like Florida, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and some others. Um, The numbers are starting to look a little bit like where we were last uh, November when the Northeast was slammed. but now the Northeast actually has the lowest numbers, and that's likely due to very high vaccination rates in the states of the Northeast. Um, most kids have mild symptoms or no symptoms. I, I would say that severe illness and even hospitalization um, is still very uncommon in kids. But the numbers for severe illness, hospitalization, and even deaths are higher than what we've seen in the past. And this is especially in the younger kids. The five to 11 years of age. And for me as a pediatrician and as a parent, and I think just as a person, death is the shocking part. Kids may make up an extremely small percentage of people who have died from COVID, but this number is almost 500 kids who have died, which is way too much because zero kids should die of an infectious disease. Um, Experts are still collecting data on the longer term impacts of the pandemic and how the virus will eventually affect kids' physical and mental health down the road. But we do know some things. Um, We know that the kids who are more likely to get severe illness are babies younger than one um, and kids with certain underlying medical conditions like genetic or neurologic conditions or congenital heart disease. And like the adults, um, kids with obesity, with diabetes, with asthma – Sickle cell disease, weakened immune systems, they're also at increased risk for severe illness. Um, so we have to be careful. Um, and kids have also developed a very rare but serious disease linked to COVID that we call multi-system inflammatory syndrome, or MISC, where different body parts become inflamed You name it, the whole body, (laughs) you know, heart, lungs, kidneys, brain, skin, eyes, everything gets involved. And this can happen weeks after the initial infection. And it can happen when the child has been infected and has has had no symptoms. So they may not even have known they were infected. And then weeks later, they will develop this awful condition, inflammatory condition, where they have to be hospitalized. Some of them in the ICU. Thankfully, most kids um, get treated and get better. But it's a horrible experience. Um, in addition, kids can have long COVID, long-haul COVID, as we're seeing in adults, mm-hmm. where, again, weeks after infection, they might either continue with symptoms or develop new symptoms that include things like brain fog or diarrhea or extreme fatigue, almost like the old um, the mono, you know, the post-viral, post-mono syndrome with Kids are sick for months at a time. It looks like it's happening with COVID too. So we still have a lot to learn, and we're still studying um, the impact. But kids are definitely getting sick. Yeah,
1: and and as limited as the the case numbers are for children, um, I think it's it's fair to say that the MISC is is even a smaller subset. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's okay. true. It's still very very rare. I'll yeah. say it's a serious complication, but it's a very rare one.
1: Okay. Well, and and we're here, of course, to talk to about back to school. And and if, the, if we were doing this two years ago, I'd ask about you know, how can we support kids emotionally, intellectually, physically as they're, they're maybe returning to a different schedule. And I'd love that information, but particularly this year, I'd like to at least start out with the effect of COVID on the school year and, and advice you have there. I mean, we've seen schools that have started out already and some have already had to go virtual. Um, either classroom by classroom or entire schools um, because of exposure um, to COVID. And so for parents listening, what advice can you give to help keep their kids healthy and safe in this unique environment?
2: Unique is a good way to describe it. Um, It's certainly different than non-pandemic times, but this year even feels different from last year during the pandemic. At this time last year, We were emerging from lockdowns, we were still very careful about masking, distancing, Um, schools offered hybrid and remote options, and there was no question, when kids were in school, in person last year, they were masked, they were kept at a distance from each other, they isolated when they were infected, they quarantined when they were exposed to other infected people, but it feels very different now. Um, maybe partly due to lack of specific guidelines or mandates coming from the governing bodies. Not all schools are currently putting the proper measures in place to mitigate the spread. And in addition to that, the virus itself is different. As you said, mm-hmm. there's the newer variant called the Delta variant. is much more transmissible, more contagious than the original uh, COVID-causing virus, the original coronavirus. The original strain, each person could infect two other people on average, but now with the Delta variant, each person is infecting five other people. So this is driving an increase in the numbers. And we know that it can cause more severe illness in people who have not yet received vaccines. We also know that people who have received vaccines can get infected and they can transmit the virus. But the power of the vaccine is that a vaccinated person will be contagious for a much shorter period of time, and they will also be much less likely to have severe disease, get hospitalized, and die. So the vaccines are actually very effective, even with the Delta variant, for what they for the for the concerning you know aspects of COVID. So, what should we be looking at this year as we go back to school? Medical experts and public health experts are recommending layered prevention strategies something that we kind of informally call the swiss cheese approach have you ever seen that picture or that meme picture layers of, of swiss cheese kind of standing in a line many walls of swiss cheese standing one next to the other the virus wants to get through it goes through one hole and let's say that's masking and then you know masking isn't perfect so it gets through that and then it meets up with the next swiss cheese and that's Let's say good ventilation in the schools. Oh, it's not perfect, so it gets through that, and then there's hand washing. Well, maybe it'll get through that, but a lot of the viruses are being blocked by now, and vaccination, etc. So many walls that are maybe each one imperfect when they're one next to the other eventually really do protect very well. That's the Swiss cheese approach. So what are these Swiss cheese layers? Yeah. Let's talk about them. Vaccinating. Okay, I can start with that because that is so important. And we have seen how well, as I mentioned, we've seen how well the vaccines work, yet we're also seeing not enough people vaccinating. So I'd like to really put it out there. Everyone who is eligible should be vaccinated, and that is kids 12 and up and adults. We're hoping that the kids 5 to 11 will have the vaccine soon. Um, but realistically that'll be more towards the end of the year. I cross my fingers that it will be this year in 2021. Um, so right now it's just the Pfizer vaccine for kids 12 and up two shots, three weeks apart. Now there's a third dose, a booster dose a month after um, the second shot for kids who are immunocompromised who have weakened immune systems, similar to adults. Um, so that's cancer patients, transplant patients, HIV patients, kids on on chronic steroid medications, things like that. And actually, the newest CDC recommendation from a couple of days ago is that a third dose will be offered for everyone um, eight months after they were fully vaccinated. That'll start hopefully in September. So so that's good. At the moment, only about a third of the 12 to 15-year-olds are vaccinated. And not even half of the 16 to 17 year olds are vaccinated. There's a lot of vaccine available. So that's not the problem. We just need people to go and get it.
1: I want to take this opportunity to remind all Foreign Service Benefit Plan members age 18 and older that there is an incentive available to you for getting your COVID-19 vaccine. Um, And that is, I should be clear, getting fully vaccinated. So you can submit to us through the member portal evidence of full vaccination and get $25 deposited to your um, wellness incentive fund account. So please do that. If you've already done it, that's fine. It can be past vaccination. It can be current, it can be future, but send that in. And uh, we would love to give you that $25 for doing doing that thing to keep you healthy. It's available in medical settings. So doctor's offices at pharmacies. Even in pharmacies,
2: so you could just yeah. walk into uh, you know, locally here in Massachusetts, we have CVS, we have Walgreens, you can walk in and say, I'd like the vaccine. You can call, you can look at cvs.com or whatever the website is for the pharmacy online and book it. It's really easy. My youngest daughter just turned 12. I went online and booked her an appointment right after she turned 12 and she got it. And it was really not hard to do. So that is the, the first piece of Swiss cheese is the vaccine. Okay. Um, I want to go on to the next important slice of Swiss cheese, and that's masks. CDC, American Academy of Pediatrics, all recommend indoor masking, regardless of vaccination status, particularly in school systems. Um, in, In the county, in the town where I live, it's in all indoor areas in the town, and this will vary from place to place. but. CDC and AAP definitely recommend masking inside of schools, including um, in transportation vehicles. Outdoor is not necessary unless it's a really crowded outdoor setting. So the important thing to remember about masks is they need to be worn correctly, right? Over the nose and the mouth. They need to fit well, right? They don't wanna have huge gaps. They need to be tightly fitted. um, And that might mean trying different types of masks for the kids. And they should have at least two layers. Three, even better. Um, Don't need to spend a lot of money. Um, You know, I think the important thing with masks is what the kid will wear. (laughs) Not, you know, who knows what will happen in the future with the variants and whether we will be instructed to wear specific types of masks. But at the moment for kids, and we've seen that kids spend all day long in masks, really without most of them, without any problems at all. Um, so whatever the kid is most comfortable with, whatever fits them well, that's what they should wear.
1: And, and that's what we've heard also from, we, we had recent episodes with, with two educators, one at elementary school level and one at the middle school level. And there has not been an issue with mask wearing. Sometimes kids need a reminder to pull it back up over their nose or put it on again after lunch. Um, but I, I have two five-year-olds who wear them all day and it's not, not been an issue for anybody in their class. And it's kept the, the last, you know, uh, outbreak, not even an outbreak, the last exposure in their school was in January and everybody's been doing, doing fine since then with the masking. So uh,
2: well, I'm glad that's, to hear that. Yeah, and I want that. to mention there are rumors <laughs> um, and I will say they're rumors because they have not been proven by science of uh, problems with the masks. Some people worry about kids not seeing facial expressions. So therefore not, therefore not learning socialization techniques properly, or not getting language acquisition properly, or who knows, a crazy uh, changing the shape of the face. I've heard all kinds of things. And I will say that those are all rumors and they are unfounded because there have been no scientific studies to show that masks cause problems for kids. And actually, on the contrary, I've seen studies that show that children wearing masks in school actually have much better mental health statuses They're much less anxious and much more reassured that they're not going to get infected. So really, the science has been on the side of have kids wear masks in school indoors. Besides the fact that it stops the spread of the virus, there have not been any negative um, effects proven. Okay. Good. So. I was, I was going through the, the kind of Swiss cheese layers. Do you mind yep. if I continue? Because no, please.
1: We've got two good layers there. What okay. comes next? <laughs> All
2: right. Next is I will say to families, um, the next layer is testing. I will say to families that they should opt in to testing programs if the school provides those, if the school offers it. For example, some schools or some districts will offer um, screening tests for COVID once a week or twice a week, or maybe they'll test Some of the school at one time, another part of the school at another time. Maybe they'll just test the sports teams. Maybe they'll test the teachers. Whatever the school is offering, if the school is lucky enough to have access to tests, um, the families should opt in. It's really important to get tested because, as we said before, kids are often asymptomatic. They may not know they were infected. And they can pass on the virus to a newborn baby at home who can get very sick, to an elderly grandparent who might not have a healthy immune system, and they can get very sick. So we don't want to put our heads in the sand. We really want to know who's infected and when they're infected, so that we can take the proper precautions and maybe um, isolate or quarantine when necessary, or definitely do that when necessary. So um, I'd like to encourage families to get their children tested. It's much better to find out that the child has been infected and then keep them away from people who are at risk than just deny and ignore and have that child go on and spread. And as I said, even children who have no symptoms may go on to develop long haul covid or MISC later on. So we don't want to take the chance of just leaving people who have no symptoms and are infected with not without addressing it. Okay. Excellent. Right. Um the next layer, good hand washing, proper hand hygiene, <laughs> wash Wash hands as you know, as as you feel is appropriate for twenty seconds at a time, or use sanitizer when the hands are dirty or when kids have touched things that a lot of people touch. We don't think we know now. This is again different from last year. That cleaning and disinfection is a big part of the problem. We don't need to be wiping down our groceries and our clothing and all the stuff that we kind of did a year ago. We're, we're finding that the virus is not really spread in that way, but hand-washing is important because we tend to touch our eyes and touch our nose and our mouth with our hands without even thinking about it. Um, So we just want to keep our hands clean.
1: Good. Good in any circumstance, I think, especially (laughs) when we're dealing with particularly younger kids.
2: And I'll say the next layer, the next piece of Swiss cheese will be stay home, keep the kids home when they're sick um, and get them tested as separate from the school screening program. If the child has symptoms of a cold, is coughing, bad headache, diarrhea, you name it, then keep them at home, get them tested. If they're positive for COVID, they should isolate. You should tell any of the close contacts and a close contact is considered someone who has been within six feet of the infected person for, over 15 minutes in the course of a day. Um, Anyone who's a close contact of an infected person will need to get tested. Now, this is interesting. This is another benefit of the vaccine. Anyone who's been vaccinated doesn't need to quarantine. Remember before the vaccine, a year ago, when you were a close contact of an infected person, you had to quarantine at the time. Initially, it was a 14-day quarantine. Eventually, the option was given to quarantine for 10 days if you don't have a test or to do the test at day five. And if your test is negative, then at day seven, you can get out of quarantine. Um, But the nice thing is that if your child is fully vaccinated or if you are fully vaccinated, you get tested after exposure to make sure that you're not infected but there's no need to quarantine. So yay for vaccines.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and and yay for not spreading it, that (laughs) that option to test it even if you're asymptomatic. That's great.
2: Um, Other layers are things that maybe parents or families don't have as much control over, um, but things that the schools can do, like having proper ventilation and keeping windows open. So it's always worth checking in with the school, seeing what the school is doing, getting together as parents to encourage the schools to to take the proper measures because not all of it is in the control of the families. And the last thing I wanna talk about in terms of school and COVID is sports. Sports can be risky, um, but they can also be safe. So it depends what the context is. It depends what sport the child is doing. There are low risk sports and there are high risk sports. So it's about the ability to stay distant and how heavily the breathing is um, and whether the sport is done inside or outdoors. You know, outdoors is obviously better. Um, But things like wrestling, for example, they're very, very close. Hockey, football, there's a lot of close contact. So those will be more high risk sports. Um, Other sports like golf or tennis, where you can kind of keep your distance from your your sports partners, that's a lot lower risk. Um, And the other important thing is to look at the setting in which the sports are done. So how many people are there? How many people are playing? Are the spectators all crowding together? How long is everyone together for? Are, Are the kids carpooling and sharing car rides? Are they eating meals together after they play with their masks off? locker rooms, are they meeting teams from other areas? Those those are really the things that kind of drive up the the cases or or cause the the virus to spread when you've got crowds of people taking off their masks. So it's a lot to think about and each family really has to um, assess kind of their local community numbers, the spread of the virus, the rates of of positive cases. how likely the child will be to keep the mask on, whether the sport is low risk or high risk and everything all around, you know? So there's not very specific guidelines. The families really need to use their, their good judgment and their common sense about that.
1: I think that's that good advice for all of us, absolutely. I want to go back to, to two things that we, we've touched on before. One was um, just a discussion uh, early in our, our talk about uh, mental health needs, but you also mentioned uh, when we were talking about masks, that children who are wearing masks tend to have less anxiety about contract uh, contracting the virus in the school and so forth. Um, And so I want to just talk specifically about mental health needs during the pandemic if they vary from age to age and and how parents um, and maybe educators who are listening can support kids in in that uh, help meet those needs.
2: Well, I think mental health professionals have had their work cut out for them over the course of the pandemic. They've been super busy, both on the adult side and the children's side. It's scary. We've never been through a pandemic before. No one really knows how to navigate it or how to deal with it. So definitely there have been mental health issues. On the other hand, some kids have enjoyed being at home, um, studying online if they're introverts at heart, they feel more comfortable to be at home. So, we've seen both sides of the coin. Um, but if a parent is concerned about their children's mental health, let's talk a little bit about signs of, of mental health problems and and what the parent should look for. Um, they can be very different in different kids, but there certainly are patterns. So, let's talk about younger kids first. In younger kids, they may be fussy. They might have trouble sleeping, not want to eat. They might complain about stomach aches. That's a really common complaint. They might um, suddenly have a harder time separating from their parents called separation anxiety. They might develop more severe tantrums than they had before or than is expected for their age. They might start bedwetting after they've been dry at nights. Um, Older kids might express their distress um, as mood swings. That are not typical for the the child they might be very irritable or angry or have lots of conflicts with their friends or their family they might even express feelings of hopelessness helplessness um they might have some changes in their behavior they might become very withdrawn and just uninterested in things that they used to like to do and then of course just like in adults you know sleep problems appetite changes they might stop eating or they might Start eating a lot more than usual. Um, There might be um, problems in school. They might not do as well academically. Um, They might have poor personal hygiene. They might stop showering, not brush their hair. They might get into risky behaviors like drugs or alcohol. And of course, then they might even talk about um, death or, or suicide. So These are things that parents can look out for. And if they're concerned, they should immediately call the pediatrician. And that's what, you know, pediatricians are very well-trained in caring for children who have mental health problems. If there's any concern about death, suicide, suicide thoughts, suicide intent, then the parents should remove any weapons from the home. They should secure the medications in a locked cabinet and seek help immediately from Let's say a national suicide prevention hotline or something like that. Um, but those are extreme. I think for the most part, they can call their pediatrician. These days, often pediatricians will um, offer telehealth visits on the phone, by zoom on the computers, which is much more convenient and comfortable. And sometimes kids are actually really comfortable talking on computers because that's what they're used to using devices and using screens. Um, so I, I'd like parents to realize that they're not alone in this and the kids are not alone in this. They have um, many um, healthcare professionals and not just pediatricians, obviously. There's therapists, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, many different professionals who can help families get through this um, together.
1: That's I think that's great. And I think that is, you know, beyond the Swiss cheese layers that we talked about in terms of providing for the kids physical health um there this is a, a maybe a big wedge to put on top for the the mental health <laughs> needs that they have yeah and thank you thank you and i want to dig in because we've talked about you know some kids were doing better um on screens but we also had you know you mentioned the isolation that that people have experienced this past year and kids are not have not been exempt from that they haven't been able to connect with their peers in person as they might usually and one area of your research seems particularly relevant for our time, and that, that is your study of the effects of social media on children and adolescents and the role of parent, parental involvement in that. So, uh, you know, kids aren't connecting in person. Maybe they're turning online to meet those social needs. What are you finding in your research? And when it comes to the parental involvement, do you have any advice for parents in, in terms of creating a safe place for, for children to engage with each other?
2: Ah. It's a lot. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, you know, there are both benefits and drawbacks to social media. So I just want to say that it, it's not black and white in kids, you know, media, as you said, social media or really any type of kind of social technology. When I say to social technology, I'm referring to um, social media, but also texting and watching YouTube videos, which has become interactive, and gaming, online gaming, which is very interactive these days. Mm-hmm. So this, it can help keep kids connected. It's social, after all. <laughs> it can expose them to new ideas. It can make them aware of current events. It can give them channels to collaborate on, on projects um, and, and just find like-minded people, support networks, welcoming communities for kids who have either disabilities or illnesses or quirky personalities where they haven't found compatible people in their own area, they can actually reach out and find friends all over. So those are definitely um, some really good parts of social media or social technology. But we do know that there are some drawbacks. There have, um, studies have shown associations with overweight and obesity, especially since it leads to a very sedentary lifestyle sleep difficulties, um, which are all kind of interconnected when there's sleep difficulties, there can be overweight and when there's uh, use of too much media, you can have, it's all kind of intermingled. Um, there are described, um, problematic internet use where, where kids will become very preoccupied and even have withdrawal symptoms when their devices are taken away. So it's the language is almost like an addiction. Um, using too much screen technology can affect school performance. There have been exposures to risky behaviors, causing them to start these risky behaviors earlier. Drugs and alcohol, and cyberbullying, sexting. So there, there's there's a lot of um, ongoing studies that are really looking into well, what is the balance? How do how do we balance the benefits with the drawbacks? And you mentioned mental health. Mental health aspects, as they relate to social technologies, are very interesting. There seems to be what the scientists call a U-shaped correlation. This means that, specifically in depression, um, kids who don't use very much social media tend to be more depressed, and kids who use too much social media tend to be more depressed. So. It's not there's not so much for kids who kind of use it in moderation. But the other thing I want to mention is it's not only how much kids use social media or any kind of technology. It's it's also how they use it. Um, you know, people who are just kind of passively looking at other people's photos might not be so happy, whereas those who interact might be much better from a well-being perspective. So let me just mention the guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, They encourage parents to help their kids develop healthy media habits from a very early age. So younger than 18 months, the AAP really recommends um, only video chatting, let's say, with distant family so that they can communicate um, with loved ones. Between 18 to 24 months, they say, um, kids can use high quality programming together with their parents to do like a co-viewing activity. Between two to five years, so until school age, they recommend one hour per day of high quality educational programming. Older than five, they no longer restrict screen time as used to be recommended uh, to a certain number of hours per day. It's really subjective and it depends on the child, it depends on the family as long as the child gets enough sleep, gets enough physical activity, makes it to family dinners, does their homework, hangs out with friends and socializes in a person-to-person way, obviously not during pandemic, but then the parents can make their plan of how much media the child can use, taking that into it, those things into account. So it really can differ in, between families and differ between even children in the same families. You mentioned my work, my research that I did at Wellesley College. Um, It involved studying middle schoolers and their parents. And we've been learning about how families navigate social media and other forms of digital media. So, as I said, the key isn't only the amount of time, but the content. So we're finding that there are many different styles of parenting and many different ways to regulate a child's social media use. I'll give you some examples. Some parents restrict. They establish rules that limit Um, consumption of media, they might have curfews, they might take away devices if the child doesn't follow the rules. Um, Those are called restrictive approaches. There are active or communicative approaches where parents will have conversations with the child about what they're doing on social media, how things are going. The parents will try to teach the child critical thinking. They won't just take away the device. They'll say, think about what you're doing and what the implications are. there is co-viewing, so that's being together with the child while they're using their device. There is surveillance, um, monitoring, checking. So that's when parents will kind of check texts, check emails, look up website logs, things like that. And then there are different, different parents that really don't give restrictions at all. They say the child, I trust my child to do the right thing. Parents don't usually fit into one mode or the other they often use a mix Um, there are some patterns we see restrictive patterns more often in younger kids and different more often in adolescents which makes sense developmentally Um, we see restrictive more common with boys who tend to have more exposure to violent um, games and violent videos so the parents might tend to restrict more what we've seen in our studies is that restrictive parenting is correlated with Problematic internet use in kids. These problematic internet use would be defined as, as I said before, the kid looking like they're addicted, like they don't have motivation to do anything else. They feel anxious when they're away from their device. When I say correlated, I want to be clear that I don't mean that a restrictive parent causes their child to have problems. It could be that a child with problems is then naturally going to be restricted by the parent. So. We just see two things happening at the same time, and it's going to take a lot more studying to tease out what causes what, if at all. A lot of these things are kind of (laughs) two-way, bi-directional. But we don't see that restrictive parenting is associated with lower internet use. And I just think that's interesting. Active parenting, where they talk with their children a lot and they communicate a lot, that's correlated with families who are very close and very involved they talk to their children about how well they get along, how much they talk about that. That makes sense. Deferent parenting is correlated with technoference. That's when phones interfere with, let's say with mealtimes or, or, you know, times that the families are supposed to be together. So it's interesting to look at these things in reality, it isn't really feasible to constantly be on top of what children are doing, especially now when their devices are in their pockets, they're kept very private. um, I think open lines of communication are are vital. You know, parents can try to friend their kids, check the YouTube channels they're looking at, know who their kids befriend, who they follow. But really what parents um, need to do is be open, be supportive, be a a positive role model for their child. Um, Actually, I will give some tips in a little bit about what I think parents should do. I want to mention two other, um, two other aspects of what I have studied recently that I think are interesting for parents, and I'll just go through it very briefly. One thing that seems very clear are the associations between social media use and sleep in kids. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that screens are turned off about 30 minutes before bedtime, and they recommend not having electronics at all in the bedrooms. But we know, based on surveys done over the last few years, that at least three-quarters and probably a lot more of teenagers take their devices to bed with them. Many even sleep with them in bed. And they get up in the middle of the night because of notifications and wanting to check social media and things like that. So in our study of over 700 middle schoolers, this was in the greater Boston area, we found that all the types of social technology use that I mentioned before, so that's social media, texting... YouTube videos, and gaming, um, when they use them in the hour before bed, they were all associated with later bedtimes and reduced sleep. Not surprising. Um, half of the kids reported not getting enough sleep over, over 50%. And many of them acknowledged losing sleep because they just could not stop what they were doing online. Um, but of course the content mattered. Seeing emotionally disturbing or violent behavior, a violent content, being exposed to risky behaviors was much more associated with later bedtimes and less sleep. While um, things like reading eBooks at the time, there were kids who had Kindles. Now it's probably just on their regular tablets. Um, Texting friends and playing online games was not associated with these Mm -hmm. sleep problems. So it's just interesting because the context matters. I also looked at depressive symptoms in kids who use these social technology um, practices before sleep. And I found that kids who used social technology before bed were more likely to report depressive symptoms in the previous week. So I'm not saying they were diagnosed with depression, but they reported things like feeling sad or feeling hopeless. Not all social technology was equal. Those who checked social media and texted friends we're actually more likely to report depressive symptoms than those who watched YouTube videos or played online games before bed. Um, so it's interesting. So parents are often tempted to just limit the time children spend on electronic devices, but it really may be important to look at how and when kids are using their devices, not only how much. You know, it's a, really about what the child is doing. Are they watching horror shows or are they looking for ways to meditate before they sleep? So I'll, I'll give some tips how okay. parents can navigate these things. So first of all, um, encourage kids to practice good sleep hygiene, keep their electronics out of the room, or at least remove them an hour before bedtime. Um, if the devices remain in the bedroom, encourage the kids to use them for reading and not social communication throughout the night, especially not social media and, and texts. If a child shows mood or behavior problems, as I mentioned earlier, all the different patterns I talked about in the little kids, big kids, well, consider the pre-bedtime social technology use. Um, look at their sleep habits and definitely reach out to their, their health care providers, as I said. Um, and finally, there's something called a family media use plan that the American Academy of Pediatrics has developed, which can be found online. And it's a really fun, easy to use um, online document where the family plugs in their lifestyle, the child's personality, the things that the child does on a day-to-day basis, and they're able to kind of print out a plan for what the child should do on a day-to-day basis and how to use the media that they use and how often and et cetera. So it's a really nice, um, it's a nice little tool for families to use to try to establish good practices in their home.
1: And I think we'll, we'll be able to um, put a link to that resource in our show notes. So anybody who's listening, please check that because that sounds like something I will be um, <laughs> doing as soon as we as soon as soon we finish <laughs> talking um, for my own family to, to start good habits early. Great. Um, you have been so generous with your time and your expertise um, about preventive care, about behavioral health, about your research, about COVID. And I really appreciate it. And before we wrap up, my, my usual instinct is to say, all right, what's one thing you want to encourage parents to think about as school starts again? But that doesn't seem sufficient this year. So what <laughs> advice or guidance do you have that we haven't already touched on um, that you, you want uh, our, our readers uh, our reader, that you want our listeners to have before we wrap <laughs> up? Well, we've
2: talked about so many things. I'll say on the COVID front. I want parents to know that children can safely return to school. They really can, as long as we follow the same prevention strategies that we have been using, because they still work. Vaccinations, masks, Swiss cheese approach. Just remember, they can go to school if we have Swiss cheese. (laughs) Um, And so they don't need to worry. But I do think that they need to keep in mind that the public health guidelines about how to stop spread are still very important and even more right now as we are entering into a fourth surge, unfortunately. And as far as social media, like I said before, know what's going on with your kids, find out what intrigues them. The more you talk with the kids, the more you understand what their needs are. Consider both quantity and quality of time on social media, discuss them as much as you can so you can be a proactive parent and model healthy use, which I think is relevant to all behaviors. I
1: think, and and good for all of us to keep in mind for for our mental health as as adults as well, that screen time doesn't always equal good quality or even mental health time. So thank you for that. Um, Dr. Alana Pearl Ben-Joseph, thank you so much for your time today, for for sharing so much with us. Um, We'll have links to Kids Health and to the... um, the media plan, um, tool in our show notes, but, um, we hope to have you back maybe someday in the future to talk about returning to normal, perhaps.
2: <laughs> oh, I um, hope so. I'm I distressed. hope
1: so. <laughs> I hope it's soon, but for now, thank you so much. Thank you too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Aspa Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show and tell your friends about it. We welcome your feedback on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Look for at Aspa Cares. All information offered in this podcast is meant to be educational. Comments offered by the hosts or guests are not intended as medical advice. Please direct questions about your personal health needs to a provider. Should there be any discrepancy between information offered in this podcast and official plan documents for the Foreign Service Benefit Plan or other products offered by ASPA, the policy provisions will prevail. Special thanks, as always, to Hannah Wolfhart for producing, editing, and mixing this episode. We'll see you next time.